Have you ever been misunderstood? Is there ever a time when you did something, your heart was in the right place, you meant well, but the person you were trying to bless actually misunderstood, misinterpreted, got upset about it, and then you had to go to them and had to work that all out if they were even willing to hear you or talk about it. Misunderstandings, miscommunications can bring all kinds of problems in relationships, can't they? Have you experienced it? Have you been there? People have misunderstood your motives or they've misinterpreted your words. They thought you were doing something selfishly and really it was for them. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is involved with with this church in Corinth. They're interpreting his actions, his words one way. And Paul has a chance through this letter to explain to them what was really going on. It's frustrating when you have a miscommunication or misunderstanding and the other party won't engage in solving that problem. It's really frustrating. Have you dealt with that? Communication issues, oh, can be so hard. Well, that's what's going on with the Apostle Paul, and we're going to see that as we go through. But before we actually get into the passage, I need to give you a little bit of historical background. Now, when I say historical background, that's not your cue to take a nap. What I'm going to tell you in the next couple of minutes is meant for your good so you can understand what's going on in the chapter and in this section. So if you read the book of Acts, Paul, he's in a city called Ephesus doing ministry. Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. We went there on our trip. We took as a church, 30 of us went to Greece and made a little side trip over to Ephesus in Turkey. Wonderful ancient ruins there. It's amazing. That's where Paul was doing ministry. And in Corinth, a guy named Apollos was teaching there. And Paul gets word from a woman named Chloe, or at least people from her household from Corinth, that things were going bad in the Corinthian church. Divisions had sprung up. Some people were aligning with this teacher. Some people were aligning with that teacher. And things in Corinth were getting somewhat messy and discombobulated, you could say. It was getting ugly. There were contentions and fights and arguments. So Paul gets word about that. And to address that issue, he writes 1 Corinthians. So he sends 1 Corinthians over to the Corinthians. He addresses their issues and he corrects their doctrine. But it seems that many people in the Corinthian church didn't like what Paul had to say in that first letter. They were negative about it. They were not receiving of it. So Paul decides to make a quick visit from, where is he? Ephesus, over to the church in Corinth. We're tracking together, very good church. So he makes this quick trip to follow up his letter, 1 Corinthians, to see if he could kind of smooth the waters. But guess how the trip goes? Really bad. Not the traveling, but his relationship with them. He gets there, they get together, and it's just really contentious, really uncomfortable, and it just does not go well at all. So Paul, instead of continuing his plans, he goes back to Ephesus and he writes another letter, a letter that we don't have anywhere. I'll explain that further on. It's not the letter of 2 Corinthians. So we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but there's actually probably four letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We only have preserved two of them, 1 and 2 Corinthians. But he writes this other letter from Ephesus to the Corinthians, and it's become known as Paul's harsh letter. It's a tough letter. Have you ever written an email like that? I mean, it's one of those emails that if Paul had email, he would have written it and hit send and said, oh, I don't know if I should have sent that. I mean, that was hard. 
Have you ever sent an email or a letter and regretted it? Like, ooh, maybe that was a little harsh. Or someone else read it and said, Steve, that was, that was harsh what you said. Well, that's this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He writes this harsh letter. So instead of then going back to see them again, remember, he's in Ephesus, writes the harsh letter, sends it with a guy named Titus. They make a plan that after Titus delivers this harsh letter, they'll meet up in a place called Troas, and then Titus will tell Paul how it went. So Paul's fretting over this letter, sends Titus with the letter, then he leaves and goes to Troas to meet who? Titus, and Titus is not there. So Paul's blood pressure is rising, his tension is rising, he's stressed out. So he crosses over into Europe, into northern Greece, and he goes into probably the city of Philippi. And guess who he sees in Philippi? He sees Titus. And he can't wait to see what happened with the letter. They go to the coffee shop, Titus. What happened with the letter? And Titus says, Paul, it's good news. It's good news. They received your letter. They changed their attitude. They repented and things are going much better. I mean, there's still a few people that are against you, but for the most part, they're with you, Paul. They love you. They want to rekindle relationship with you and live happily ever after. Okay, it doesn't say that but you get the idea. So this news comforts Paul. He's so happy that it went well. So as response to their receiving his letter well, he writes them 2 Corinthians. And he writes to reaffirm his love for them and also to reaffirm his apostleship because of the remaining few that were sort of against him and spreading this anti-Pauline doctrine in Corinth. So that's why he writes 2 Corinthians. And you'll need to know some of that as we go through. There'll be references to these things as we travel through 2 Corinthians. So he's talked about comfort in the first 11 verses. He was comforted by Titus's coming. God is a God of all comfort. And Paul has experienced that in a real way. But then verse 12, he says, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, not with worldly wisdom or selfish wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. See, there was still a small group in Corinth that was against Paul. This was a group of people that looked at things for what they were on the outside. They looked at how things appeared and they compared Paul to the other teachers like Apollos that had come through. Paul was really knowledgeable. I mean, super duper knowledgeable about God, had revelation from God, an intimate relationship with God. But the problem is he didn't really look the part. He wasn't very charismatic in his speaking. He wasn't very polished. And he didn't really have much of a stage presence. One big unibrow, knobby knees, short guy, hunched over, bad eyesight, drippy eye. I mean, who knows? But he didn't have a good stage presence. So people... Now, we know this. People are, tend to be attracted to things that are more charismatic and beautiful externally. So they really, comparing Paul to some of these other guys that were there, false teachers, they were more attracted to the false teachers because of how they looked than they were to Paul, despite the differences in the truth that was being taught. And I think we have some of this today in our world, don't we? I think we tend to see people attracted to charismatic speakers, doesn't matter what they say if it's entertaining. I've sat and watched sermons on TV 
and I've watched and I'm listening to what's being said. I'm listening to the doctrine and the speaker. There's some really good speakers out there, really motivational, really can get a crowd worked up. And I'm watching the crowd of people in the church. Everybody's going, amen, amen, raising hands and standing up and amen and amen. And I'm thinking, the guy's teaching heresy. Like that's not even true what he just said. Has nothing to do with a passage that he quoted. But yet the people are attracted because it's, it's charismatic, it's exciting. And that's what Paul was going through. You know, sometimes people would rather listen to an entertaining lie than the truth if it might be a little less entertaining. That's a real problem. And Paul is having to deal with that. They're bragging about their credentials, these people in Corinth. They're bragging about credentials. And because of that, we get three resumes from Paul in 2 Corinthians. He tells about what a minister of God really looks like. He calls the apostles the false apostles in Corinth. He calls them ministers of Satan. And he shows them what a true servant of God looks like. The first misunderstanding they had in Corinth, they misunderstood what a real servant of God is supposed to look like. And I think a lot of people today misunderstand what a real servant of God is supposed to look like. So Paul, he said, I'm not going to boast about these outward things like others might, but his boast, I can tell you, he says, my conscience, the way I conducted myself, my conscience is clear. That's what he boasts about. I have a clear conscience. He would be saying, I'm not sure if the other guys can boast about that. I'm not sure if these false apostles can boast about that, but I can tell you one thing, that when I lay my head on the pillow at night, I know that I've lived with simplicity. That doesn't mean simplicity like he threw away all the extra stuff in his life. Simplicity is single-mindedness. Paul didn't have mixed motives. He wasn't there for his own purposes or his own gain. He was there for them. All that he went through, all the challenges, all the struggles, all the travel, all the heartache, all the opposition, all the persecution, it was for them so they could hear the gospel. So he says, I know in my conscience that I was living with simplicity and godly sincerity, that you could hold his life up to the light. That's what sincerity means. You could hold his life up to the light and it would be honest and pure. In darkness, sometimes it's hard to tell if something is genuine. The word sincere Sini Siri means without wax. So in ancient Greek culture, if you had a broken vase or a broken pot and you wanted to still sell it, I mean, this is your inventory, you could glue that thing back together, but they didn't have Gorilla Glue. They didn't have duct tape either. You'd notice that. So they would put some wax. They'd melt some wax, glue the two pieces back together with the wax. You'd get it home, put your flowers in it, put it out. And as soon as the sun came out, that piece would start dripping off the end there. And you're like, hey, wait a second, I've been taken. See, it looked good, but when it was exposed to the light or to the sun, it was demonstrated to be not what you thought it was. So Paul's saying, my behavior in the church, my behavior in the world is consistent. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not a chameleon. And I know it in my own conscience. I hope you can go to bed with that kind of clear conscience. To me, a clear conscience is worth millions. Just laying down at the end of the day, knowing... I've done what God called me to do to the best of my ability. No mixed motives, no ulterior agendas like they would be accusing him of. Whether I'm at the gym or at the grocery store or preaching in front of the Calvary Chapel family, I hope that what can be said of my life is that he's the same person. If we brought your kids up here on stage, we asked, is mom the same person she is at home as she is in church? Does she sing the same songs at home that she does in church? Does she say the same kind of things? How about dad? Is he the same on the ball field as he is in the choir? 
Paul would say that he was. And that's what gave him his clear conscience. He wasn't operating on fleshly wisdom, but it was the grace of God in his life. So that's the first misunderstanding. They misunderstood what a servant of God would look like. The second thing, as we move on, verse 13, Paul says, for we're not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand, even to the end, even to the teleos, to the conclusion that should be reached. And also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because they misunderstood what a servant of God looked like, they were kind of ashamed of Paul. I mean, these other apostles, these other speakers were flowery. They were charismatic, not in the Pentecostal charismatic sense, but they were good speakers. They could work the crowd. They could work up the emotions. They looked the part. They collected money. They got paid for what they did. Paul, he had to have a job. He was suffering a lot. He had a lot of trouble in his life. So they weren't real proud of him, at least initially. And Paul wants them to know that you should be able to boast in our ministry because we're really servants of Christ, just like you are also our boast. I think maybe, possibly, hang with me, that when Paul says, we're not writing to you anything different than what you read or understand. We're not saying one thing now and then a different thing over here and a different thing over there. We've been consistent in our message about how we feel about you. He says, verse 14, that we're your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. You know how it is. Paul's had to bring some correction to the Corinthians. Paul called them already in 1 Corinthians. He said, you guys are like babes in Christ. You're like little children, like babies. And you know what happens when little children get upset, when you have to tell them no, or you have to correct them? Well, you don't love me. You think the Corinthians were saying that to Paul? Because he corrects, we're not sure if Paul really loves us. We're not sure if he even likes us. He's been so hard on us, been so harsh. And Paul wants them to know he's not wishy-washy. He's not changing his tune about them. They misunderstood that love, listen carefully, they misunderstood that love and discipline go hand in hand. They are like a newlywed couple, Paul and this church, like a newlywed couple just trying to work out communicating together. And they seem to keep kind of missing each other in the process. But Paul's saying, it's not that I'm ashamed of you. I love you and I want to boast. When the Lord Jesus returns, I'm going to be boasting that you received the gospel that I brought. So that's the next misunderstanding. Verse 15, and in this confidence, I intended, notice that I intended, you can underline that, I intended, I purposed, I determined to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. So his initial plan, he hadn't just done it willy-nilly. He hadn't just kind of sat down and said, well, we'll see what happens. Paul had a plan. He planned to go to visit the Corinthians. Then he would go up north to Philippi and Thessalonica. And then he would come back down to the Corinthians again. They would give him what he needed for his trip to where church? To Jerusalem. That's where he was going to go. He's going to take the offering that they were collecting to Jerusalem. But he gets there to Corinth. The meeting goes so bad, he changes his plans. Instead of going up to the north at that time, he goes back to Ephesus and writes that harsh letter. So his plans changed, but he says it wasn't willy-nilly. That's what they were accusing him of. Look at verse 17. He says, therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Meaning, was I fickle? Or the things I planned 
do I plan according to the flesh based on passing desires or emotions? That with me, there should be yes, yes, and no, no. They misunderstood and completely misinterpreted Paul's character. They interpreted his actions wrong. You ever done that? You ever judge someone's actions? Or and by their actions, you judge not just what they did, but you judge their motive? Or has anybody ever judged your motive and got it wrong? Well, that's what they're doing to Paul. They looked at his willy-nilly plans. I'm coming, I'm not coming, I'm coming, I'm not coming. And they said, Paul, you just can't trust him. I mean, he's all over the place. He's unstable. He says one thing and then he does another and he does this and he says that. He's just not trustworthy. And look at the proof of that is his botched up travel plans. He keeps changing on us. And they really, really held it against him. And you know, plans change. And Paul, I believe, responded to the Spirit of God as he changed his plans. And we'll talk about that as we get further into this passage. But his plans changed. And now he's asking these rhetorical questions. You guys think I was fickle when I made those plans? I mean, is that what you think about me? You think I'm just a fickle guy that I just changed at the drop of a hat? Or do you think that everything I do is just based on feelings? That if I don't feel like coming, I'm not going to come? Some of them accused him of being afraid to face them in person. That's why he sent Timothy. And that's why he sent Titus. Because they said, Paul's afraid to see us in person. He's chicken. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That we should be as Christians, as followers of Jesus, people of our word. That when we say yes, it should mean Maybe. No, it should mean yes. So we have to be careful about what we say yes to. We have to count the cost of saying yes, because I like in the Psalms, it says the person who dwells on high with God is the person who makes a plan and keeps it to his own hurt. Otherwise, sometimes you say you're going to do something and circumstances change and you go, well, I said I was going to do it. I can't just decide not to now. Now, when Paul makes his decision, he's going to explain to them why he made this decision. But for a lot of people, they do make plans as fickle people. They do make plans in the flesh or according to the flesh. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, you say, oh yeah, yeah, I'll come. But you never really intend to come. And just going to cancel at the last minute. I mean, church life has, in this pastor's opinion, gotten harder over the last five, six years. I see people less willing to be committed to things because I think, I think, People want to preserve the freedom to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. I don't want to get locked in to a long time of something because what if I don't feel like it anymore? So we struggle to find volunteers that are trustworthy in the church. And again, we got tons of volunteers around here. Please don't hear me uh, condemning this church. I'm just noticing something about human nature. Have you noticed that too? Maybe where you work or maybe in school or maybe in places you go, it's harder and harder to find people to commit. And then when you do find people that commit, you get the last minute phone call. Oh, sorry, I can't come. Now things happen. Flat tires happen. I had a lunch appointment planned for Friday and I ended up on the side of the road on Route 53 with a blown out tire. I had to call and say, guess what? Got to cancel lunch. Got a flat tire on the side of the road. Wasn't my plan, but it happened. So things happen. But what Paul is talking about is they were accusing him of just being fickle and fleshy. And you know, you get up and just go, well, you know, I don't feel like going. I don't feel like doing that today. And so you just cancel willy-nilly. And Paul says, that's not what I was doing. So a couple of quick things about planning. Number one, take your planning seriously. When you commit to something, count the costs. And if you say you're going to do it, as much as it's possible with you, do it. 
Keep your commitments. People that are faithful in little things will be faithful with much. People that are unfaithful and untrustworthy with little things will be untrustworthy with big things. I find that people who generally are successful in life and spiritual life are people who are trustworthy. They say what they mean. They mean what they say. If they make a commitment, they keep it. Now, what happens if someone changes their plans on you? I say, be gracious. Be gracious. It happens all the time. I get a lunch appointment, I get canceled. Lunch appointment, canceled. I had one guy years ago, canceled on me three times. Made three lunch appointments, canceled three times. You know what I said when he called me the fourth time? I said, what time do you want to meet? I'm available. It doesn't hurt me. I always got things to do. But it was just a reflection of where he was in his life, not in a healthy place, not in a good place. So that's what they're accusing Paul of, of being fickle and wishy-washy. Now, this is amazing what Paul says next. Verse 18, but as God is faithful, listen carefully, as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. You see, Paul's saying, guys, you should have given me the benefit of the doubt because you know, and I know, that a trustworthy God produces trustworthy people. As God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. Paul says, because I serve Christ, because I'm a man who follows God, God's character is taking place in my life. So instead of misunderstanding my actions, you should have given me the benefit of the doubt, knowing that it must be some other explanation. Maybe you know the story of Billy Graham. You know who Billy Graham is. He traveled around for years doing crusades. And on one of his early crusades, he pulled into a little town and was doing a crusade there and doesn't know where the venue is, doesn't have directions, didn't have GPS at that time. So he pulls into a gas station to get directions and a little boy at the gas station is there and he says, hey, young man, I'm trying to find such and such a place to do a crusade tonight. Can you tell me where it is? Little boy gives him instructions how to get there. And, and as Billy Graham is getting back in his car, he says to the young boy, he says, I'll tell you what, you ought to come out there tonight. I'm going to be telling people how to get to heaven. And the little boy looks at him and says, I don't think I'm going to come. And Billy Graham says, oh, what? Why not? He says, mister, you don't even know how to get to the venue. How are you going to tell people how to get to heaven? It's a difficult truth that the Bible says, let not many of you become teachers because you're held to a higher accountability. And the messenger does affect in some ways the message. So they're saying to Paul, because we can't trust you and your plans, we're not sure if we can trust what you've said to us. We're not sure if we can trust your preaching. You see, Paul goes on to say that the Christian life is actually a very predictable thing. Because he said, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, with him is not yes and no, is very consistent, not back and forth, but in him was yes. What we said to you in Christ is yes. I like that, the affirmative. Does God resist the proud and give grace to the humble? Yes. Pastor, can I be saved in Christ? Yes. Pastor, do you think my life can be redeemed in Christ? Yes. 
Do you think there's hope for me that I might go to heaven someday in Christ? Yes. All of the promises of God. Listen up, church. All of the promises of God are in Christ. Yes. Affirmative. Not yes and no and maybe. Yes and consistently yes. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It's trustworthy. If I call on the Lord, can I be? Yes. Yes. You see, all these promises are in Christ. Yes and amen. Because I meet people that come to church and they sit in a seat in a building and they call it having been to church. I did church. Pastor, I did church and it didn't do for me what I thought it should. Because all the promises of God are not in the church building. Yes and amen. And on all the promises of God are not in the pastor. Yes and amen. Do we know that church? You can't look to the pastor to fulfill all the promises of God in your life. They are in Christ a certainty. And that's what he's saying. Our word to you was not yes and no. We were faithful in what we said. All the promises of God are in him. I like this. Yes and amen. Jesus said, anything you ask in my name, it'll be done for you. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. Because if you ask, you'll receive. And if you knock, the door will be opened. And if you seek and keep seeking, guess what will happen? You'll find. You'll find. And I like this. So all that God has promised in Christ is yes, and it's amen. That's our response. In Christ, God says yes. And then we say, church, amen. There's a guy that oftentimes sits down here. You know who he is. He's my amen guy. I'll be preaching along and I'll say something and he goes, amen. Now, I like that. He's hearing and responding to the word of God. Now, sometimes I've been to places where enough is enough, but it's good to get a response. Like somebody's heart is beating out there. Sometimes it feels like we're just plowing through quicksand up here. I wish you could sit here sometime. So when someone says, amen, it's really encouraging. It's good. It's communicative. Verse 21. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's God, our Father in heaven, who establishes us, who has anointed us, who has sealed us, and has given us the Spirit. Four things that God has done that is certain. So you see, Paul is making this transition to the certainty of the things we have from God in Christ. It's God who is established, who confirms us in Christ. And then he uses the word, he has anointed us. God has anointed us, which means to basically choose, to put the blessing on. If you remember the Old Testament, when God wanted to choose someone like King David to be the king, he would send his prophet to anoint them. It's a demonstration of God's calling. And God's done that for us. In Christ, we are anointed by God, useful for a purpose to serve him. And he says that we've been sealed. That's like a signature. Maybe you've seen pictures or maybe you've used one where you have a wax stamp. We don't really use them that much anymore. But if you had a document, an important document, this would be like a signature. The document gets written and it's a contract and it gets sealed. It's closed up and then hot wax is dripped on it, on the seal, the closure. And then you would put your signet ring, you'd have a ring on your finger, 
and it would have your family insignia or your initials or something like that. And you'd put your insignia, your signature ring in the hot wax and it would leave its imprint. And then that letter would be carried, that contract would be carried to the person who was receiving it and they would see it and they would see the seal on there. They would know two things. Number one, they would know it was from you because of your signature. And they would know too that no one's tampered with it. So whatever's said is reliable because the seal is unbroken. You wrote it, you sealed it, it's trustworthy. And that's what God says about us. We've been signed, sealed for the kingdom of God and authenticated. And just to prove it, he's given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Another business kind of word, a guarantee is you could interpret it, a down payment, a deposit. You want to buy something, you give an initial amount of money that says, I promise that I'm coming back to get the whole thing. I give you this deposit. It's a promise. It's also a word used for an engagement ring, the same Greek word. So when two people are going to get engaged, they give a ring that's a promise of a future fulfillment of marriage. So God says the spirit in our hearts is his down payment that he's coming back to get us in full, that he's coming back to get us. Now, see, that's encouraging to me. Now, let me ask you a quick question. Do you think when Paul says God has given us the spirit, his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, do you think that's experiential or do you think that's just theological? When a man puts an engagement ring on a woman's finger, do you think that's experiential or just philosophical? What would the woman say? They've been talking about engagement for a long time and he comes in, he puts a pretend ring, an air ring on her finger. Like, I'm not really going to have a ring. I'm just going to pretend I'm putting a ring on your finger. She'd be like, that does nothing for me. I'm not encouraged by that at all. I look at my finger, I see nothing. How can I know you're really serious unless there's actually something tangible to see so that I know your promise is true? Are you with me, church? Thank you, thank you. Applying the sermon already. When I got saved and God put his spirit in my life, my life changed. And there's days, you know, you have them where you go, yeah, is this Christianity thing really real? I mean, is what we believe really real? I mean, is Jesus really coming back? You ever had that time? We all struggle with doubts. We all have times of doubt. And it's those times that we're meant to look at our lives and say, wow, God has done a work in my heart. Religion will never do it. Religion will give you no encouragement whatsoever about future things. Religion will give you no encouragement whatsoever about the promises of God. But the spirit of God in your heart when you experience the changed life, the power of God in your life, when you experience his spirit working, bringing Christ into fruition in your heart, it's real. It's real. You know something has happened. Can you say that, church? Born again believers, can you say your life is not the same as it used to be? Amen. That's because God poured his spirit into your heart. Romans 5 says the same thing. And that, what you experience there, is a guarantee that the rest of everything God says is going to happen, is going to happen. And his spirit is his promise that that's going to happen. It's a taste, a taste of what's coming. Moreover, verse 23, I call God as witness against my soul. But be careful if you're calling God as a witness against your soul. He's in the courtroom now. And he says that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy. For by faith, you stand. So they misunderstood Paul's motives. Did you see that? Now he's going to 
show them. He's going to give them the window into his heart. They said, well, Paul's not coming because he's ashamed of us, or Paul's not coming because he's scared of us, or Paul's not coming because he's fickle and untrustworthy. Paul says, do you want to really know why I didn't come? Can I tell you what God ministered to me as I was deciding what to do? I didn't come because I wanted to spare you. That's why I didn't come. It was for your benefit, not because I was fickle or flighty. That's why I didn't come. And he elaborates. He said, verse 24, not that we have dominion over your faith, but are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Paul didn't come, didn't go back right away because he wanted to give the Corinthians some room to respond to his harsh letter. He was afraid that maybe if he went and followed up the harsh letter with another visit, that it could go really bad, or maybe they would do what he said because he would have to pressure them into doing it. And he said, I don't want them to do what they do. I don't want them to respond to the truth because they're responding to me, Paul would say. I want them to respond to Jesus. So I'm going to give them time to do what God wants them to do, not out of pressure for me. Did you see that? He says, I don't have dominion over your faith. And I'll say that to you as well. I don't have dominion over your faith. You don't do what you do to please Pastor Steve. You don't do what you do to please any human being. No pastor, no church leader, no deacon, no church council has dominion over your faith. Can't tell you what to do and what not to do. We can tell you what the word of God says. We can tell you what might bring you joy or what might bring you a lot of heartache. But that's all we can do. I can't force you. I shouldn't. I'm not supposed to. It's not my role to force you, coerce you into what to do. So I love this. You know, you guys are free agents for Jesus Christ. You respond to him. If God says to you, start a home Bible study in your house, what am I going to tell you? No. I mean, who am I to tell you, no, you can't start a Bible study in your house? You can do it. If the Lord breathes life into it, people are come. If you want it to be part of the ministry of Calvary Chapel Fluvanna, then I got to make sure it's in unity and all the rest. But that doesn't stop you from doing what the Lord is telling you to do. So many people are church-centric. You know, the church has got to do this. The church has got to do that for me. Follow the Lord. The job of the administration of the church, the job of the pastors and elders and deacons or whatever else it might be in the church structure is to support, encourage, disciple, and empower God's people to do the ministry he's calling them to do. And that's all Paul is saying. I want you to do what's right. I don't want to have that role in your life where I got to be the bad guy, where I got to tell you what to do and how to do it. He says, I want to be a fellow worker for your joy. Can I just say as a pastor, amen to that? I want to be a fellow worker for your joy. Conflict is really a bummer. And correction is really difficult. I want to be a fellow worker so that I say, hey, here's what the Lord says. If you do that, if you listen to God, if you follow Jesus, I think you'll experience joy in your life. I really do. And that's what Paul says. It's by faith you stand. So now the chapter break between chapter one and two is really unfortunate. It doesn't belong there. The verses are spirit-filled, but not always the chapter breaks. So this is not a good chapter break because the thought continues. Chapter two, verse one, Paul says, but I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Again, Paul using this word, it wasn't flighty, it wasn't fleshy, it wasn't spur of the moment, it wasn't impulsive. I sat down, I thought it through. 
I thought it through and I made a decision in my mind. That's the word determined. I made a decision in my mind that I wouldn't come to you. I'd planned on it, but I thought it through. I prayed about it, sought God on it. And I feel like God revealed to me that I shouldn't come. And here's the reason. Verse two says, because if I come again and it's a real downer and a real bummer and it's real harsh and you're not ready yet to receive it, then it's going to be a second bad meeting and that's going to be really harmful. So instead, he chose to not go back because he wants the relationship to be beneficial. He wants them all to enjoy each other. Don't you think church should be like that? There's a time, listen carefully, there's a time to be really, really patient with things. There's a time sometimes to jump in and act quickly, but there's a time, and I've often regretted acting quickly. I've usually not regretted being patient with people. Isn't that part of the character of God? 1 Corinthians 13, love suffers long in his kind. Love is patient. Love has a long fuse. Paul's not looking out just to vent on them. He wants to come when it's appropriate so they can be enjoying each other. That's what he's saying right there. And he says, verse three, and I wrote this very thing to you in this harsh letter, probably, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. So Paul just uses joy over and over. He says, look, I wrote to you about this. I don't want to have sorrow. I don't want to be sad or be grieving. That's another way to translate that over you. I want to have joy over you. You see his heart, he's pouring out his heart to these people about his desire to have a joyful relationship together. That's his hope. That's his purpose. And I like verse four, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you. His heart was just constricted. He was under so much pressure over the situation. And I wrote to you out of anguish of heart with many tears. Did you see that? With many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Another thing they may have misunderstood, misinterpreted, was Paul's emotions toward them. They could have interpreted his letter as, well, Paul's just writing to make us upset. He's just being hard on us. But Paul says, actually, when I wrote that letter, did you notice the smudged ink on the letter? That wasn't because I spilled my coffee. Those were real tears I cried over you guys. Show me a pastor. doesn't matter how many letters after his name or her name. doesn't matter all the credentials, all the schooling in the world if he doesn't love his people. And Paul doesn't just talk about loving his people. He demonstrates it because he's hurting when they hurt. He's suffering because the relationship is not healthy. So when he writes to them this tough letter, by the way, this difficult letter, it's not 1 Corinthians letter. Some people say the difficult letter was 1 Corinthians, but most people don't agree with that. This difficult letter, it's not 2 Corinthians because he's writing that. Where is this letter? We don't have it. I mentioned that in the introduction. It was probably lost to antiquity somewhere. Or some say, as we get there, chapters 10 through 13 have a little bit different feel to them. Some say chapters 10 through 13 were actually the harsh letter that Paul wrote, but there's not a whole lot of evidence to back that up either. So most people say this harsh letter that he wrote, boy, would I love to read it. (laughs) But God hasn't seen fit to preserve it for us. But nonetheless, when he wrote it, this is the situation. And he says, the love that I have super abundantly for you. That's why Paul does what he does, out of love. 